Indian Summer Festival's podcast series was recorded at Tiffin Talks, our lunchtime idea series featuring a diverse group of thinkers, artists, and innovators. Tiffin Talks gathers people to share ideas and a meal together, turning strangers into friends. I'm Suresh Rao, Artistic Director and Co-Founder of the Indian Summer Festival, and we're glad to share this talk with you. Tiffin Talks at ISF 2018 was supported by Van City. Special thanks to our major partners, Simon Fraser University, Langara College and Creative BC, and our media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC and Spice Radio. Our funders, Government of Canada, City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, British Columbia Arts Council and Business for the Arts. This episode is titled Architecture as an Expression of Empathy or Affluence. B.V. Doshi, the Indian architect and winner of the prestigious Pritzker Prize in 2018, famously argues that architecture should be informed not by an aesthetics of affluence, but by an aesthetic of empathy. Four presenters speak to this provocation from their positions of design, advocacy, intervention, and public service. Amy Sharma moderates the session featuring Mariana Modio, Lugi Gyu, Patrick Stewart, and Andy Yan. Thank you very much to Suresh for this opportunity and to Indian Summer for bringing us together here. I think this is a wonderful um, series of talks. And today's talk, the topic of the talk, is architecture as an expression of empathy or affluence. So I'm just going to give you some background as to where we came to, uh, how that talk developed. And then we'll have three speakers here who I'll introduce individually. And they'll each speak for, um, let's call it, 10 minutes ish and um, after that we'll have a discussion and uh, around this theme so the reason that this theme came about is um, as some of you may know uh, this year is the 40th anniversary of the Prickster Prize which is uh, kind of like the would you say Nobel Prize of Architecture or something it's uh, uh, and it's the first year that an Indian architect has been awarded this prize and that architect's name is Balakrishna Doshi um, so I'll give you a little bit of a summary of Doshi's career. He is, Andy. thank you, Andy. <laughs> um, uh, he has a career that spans about seven decades. Uh, he's completed more than 100 projects, uh, many of which were public institutions based in India, schools, libraries, arts, arts uh, centers, and uh, low-cost housing. Um, uh, his understated buildings uh, adapted the principles he learned from working with architects such as Le Corbusier and Louis Kahn to the needs of his homeland to, of India. Um, and in considering India's traditions, lifestyles, and environment, though she designed structures that offered refuge from the weather and provided spaces in which to gather. Um, early in his career, he became known for his commitment to providing affordable housing throughout India. And um, after being awarded the prize, he gave a series of lectures and there was a lot of media press coverage. And one of the things that Sersha and I have been talking about over the past few months um, was an interview uh, in which he stated, um, uh, India isn't always a pleasant country for architects. The housing is insufficient, the infrastructure is insufficient. And when you have these problems, is it even ethical to worry about design? Um, he, he goes on to talk about the kind of guilt that the, har the profession harbors in India and how often architects work on commissions for, you know, rich um, people's houses, housing there. Um, and he, in his practice, and he believes that architecture should, should be informed by, an, not by an aesthetic of affluence, but by, uh, but by empathy. Uh, so that was our starting point, and our goal with today's talk is to bring that idea um, uh, to the, the Vancouver context, and uh, we have three speakers here that are going to deliver a short, a short talk um, in that, uh, in the vein of uh, an architecture of empathy. Um, and uh, so I'll start by introducing the first speaker. I'll give you a short bio of that speaker, and then after that talk, I'll do the bios of the other speakers. So um, I think we'll begin with um, Marianne Amodio. There's Marianne. Thank you, Marianne, for joining us today. So uh, in 2009, Marianne Amodio launched uh, her own architecture studio. Uh, she's an, um, she, at the time, is an emerging architect to great, great success to, to date. Um, 
the underlying theme of Marianne's work has been to create innovative architecture that is concise and practical, yet poetic and personal to the client. Um, by challenging everyday suppositions about architecture and encouraging an artfulness that speaks to and of the client, they have been able to create novel works that are honest and affable, open and playful, yet rooted in reality. Um, so I don't know if anyone is familiar with uh, Marianne Almodio's work, studio's work, but I encourage you, since we don't have any visuals, architects always like to have visuals in their presentations, I encourage you to please look up her studio and the amazing, playful, colorful, artful designs that, um, that have come about uh, over the years. Um, I also want to mention that Marianne is a founding board member of the Architecture for Humanity Vancouver chapter. She's a regular guest instructor at the Arts Umbrella and a regular guest critic and thesis advisor at the University of British Columbia's School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. Um, and also, she has been awarded the AIBC Emerging Firm Award in 2016, Western Living Designer of the Year Award in 2015, and was invited to be part of a national exhibition called 20 Plus Change in 2015, which recognizes emerging designers that are setting new agendas for innovation and ex excellence. So definitely someone to look out for, and already her projects stand to uh, her, the work she's describing. So Marianne, I'll turn the mic over to you. Thanks, Amy. Oh, I think, can you hear me? Okay. Can everybody hear me? That's better, I can hear myself here. All right. So um, this quote, it, w it sort of took me for a loop. Um, it's certainly contemplative, and I actually struggled with it for a few days. Um, I find this statement to be intensely antithetical. Um, and so I've listed a random sampling of thoughts that ran through my mind as I pose this question, and I'm already going to profess as a disclaimer that I do not have the answers to any of these questions, and that I'm very grateful to um, the Indian Summer Arts Society for including me on this distinguished panel and um, to be with you all today so that we can discuss these random thoughts. So uh, number one thought that came into my mind. Does the presence of affluence negate a empathy? Number two, why does this dichotomy even exist when we as a collective cu culture are so affluent? Three, how much empathy is enough empathy so that we can truly say that we're empathic? Number four, should affluence beget empathy? And number five, uh, the bit of the outlier, how do we value beauty in society? And this last thought sort of surprised me when it first came up. Um, on the surface, it appears a curious thing to relate beauty to a polemic of empathy and affluence. And I can't quite explain why this thought came to mind. And I can assure you that when um, it first appeared, I sort of, my first reaction was to dismiss it. Like, this is a serious question about our morality as a culture and my morality as an architect and the kind of architect I want to be as a, shaper of urban form. Uh, what does beauty have to do with it? Uh, it's gratuitous, it's, it's uh, privileged, isn't it? Um, but it still piqued my interest. So I sort of, while I was writing this, I was um, teasing out this sort of a thought. And um, I can't promise that it resolves into any sort of cogent point. So uh, I'll beg your indulgence. Um, but in general, I think collectively that we believe that the more beautiful a place is, the more affluent it is. Um, because we have no way of quantifying beauty, measuring its value in scientific data or in dollars and cents, then the very nature of its uselessness becomes an expression of affluence. Composition, form, access to daylight, the play of light and shadow, a dance of volume, the creation of space dedicated only for repose or for the moment where neighbors can meet. These are all, I can assure you, quite unnecessary additions to a construction budget. Um, and really, as such, they are expressions of affluence and often um, delegate, delegated only for the affluent. And we can see this in Vancouver so clearly. Even space is at a premium net right now, just plain square footage. So. I'm going to fight the wind here, turn my page. 
But however, in, our, in my own work, I know that we value beauty so much. And I think it's because we feel like it's actually a necessity to empathy. And I might suggest that Roshi um, would too. Um, I don't think that empathy can actually exist without beauty. And I would say that if I were feeling particularly bold this afternoon. Um, for example, our modular temporary houses come to mind, um, the ones that we're seeing come up quickly um, throughout the city. Are temporary housing buildings necessary? Absolutely. Are they empathic? Yes, but only in the sense that they provide the most basic of shelter, a measurable kind of empathy, if you will. Are they um, empathic to deeper spiritual needs, to the creation of community, to fostering of our fullest capacity of well-being? No, and you can see this because they're not beautiful. Um, a colleague refers to them as people storage. I would say that they represent a kind of bare minimum empathy that is a necessary first step, but for an affluent society, it sure took us an inordinately long time to even get there. Um, but I also believe that if these buildings evolve to include the, even the simplest expression of humble materiality or a strip of shared landscape inside the building or even a simple balcony, we would go a lot further in feeding the human spirit. I don't believe as architects that we can absolutely solve social issues, but we can create spaces that allow that work to happen. And lately, I do believe that we are seeing a shift in the perception of beauty and how it is valued. In our own work, we constantly push for these, this uselessness, these useless spaces, adding balconies um, to a rental building where there were none previously. And we're always trying to um, ask the city to strive to create incentives for developers to create useless social space or space of community. We try to create spaces for community gathering, spontaneous interaction, and most of all, porosity. Um, so residents can just simply turn their faces to the sun. Um, we see this work supported by advocates uh, partners such as Happy City. Um, they're constantly espousing principles of urban and building planning that create wellness and a sense of belonging. And we are starting to see what measurable data. I know that Vancouver Coastal Health is currently working on a study that relates spatial quality to improvements in mental health. And I believe very soon, if not already, beauty will be a measurable and quantifiable good. We'll be able to prove in scientific terms what we already instinctively and intrinsically know. So in answer to the question, should architecture be an expression of empathy or affluence, I'll quote our inspiration for this evening. In his lecture when accept, accepting the Pritzker Prize, Doshi asks us, do we want to live our lives beautifully? And indeed, I think we would all say yes in all the different iterations of that meaning. Thank you. Thank you, Marianne. Okay, so now we'll move on to Patrick Stewart. Uh, Pat Patrick is a principal of, of uh, his own architecture firm near Chilliwack, British Columbia. He's also a writer, a homeless, homelessness activist, and an adjunct professor at the McEwen School of Architecture at Laurentian University. He is co-editor of the newly released book, Our Voices, uh, Indigeneity and Architecture, in 2018 was published, and author of the upcoming books, Complex Intimacies, and I Hear My Grandfather Speak in the Longhouse. Patrick is a member of the Niska Nation, he holds a PhD from the University of British Columbia and just returned from the Venice Biennale opening of Unseated as an exhibiting architect with the Indigenous Architecture Exhibition representing Canada at the 2018 uh, Venice Architecture Biennale. He is also chair of the Indigenous Task Force for the Royal Architecture Institute of Canada and chair of the BC Provincial Aboriginal Homelessness Committee. He was the first Indigenous president of the um, Architectural Institute of British Columbia. Um, Patrick and I spoke extensively the night before, and there's so much, many more things I could say about him, but I'm going to let him do the talking, and then, I, and then I'm going to tease it out of him if he doesn't say it in his talk. So I'll pass the mic over to Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Amy. Close enough. Sungagat, Sagaramanak. 
Good afternoon. Uh, my Niska name is Lukigyo. I'm a killer whale uh, of the uh, house of Dakin, of uh, the uh, Niska village of Gingol, which is up in the, the Nass Valley. Uh, I live currently in um, Ontiacton First Nation near Chilliwack, and that's where I, I practice from. I'd like to recognize that we're currently on the unceded territory of the uh, Squamish, Musqueam, and Tewatooth uh, nations. And it's good to be here. I'm glad to see a, a full house, if this is a house. Um, and thanks to the uh, Summer Indian Festival for the invitation to come. Um, I was here in 2015 and uh, was a very energizing uh, kind of uh, event. It was, it was great. It was inside, though. Um, <laughs> but this is very good. So it was interesting to receive the direction on, on our talk today. Um, and the work by Doshi, it takes me back. He came to McGill when I was there, and um, we spent an afternoon with him. And just the kind of work that he does is so, I guess, uh, it parallels the work that I, I do in a sense, although it's totally different context. Um, but, you know, whether architecture should display empathy or affluence, to me it's both. Um, because I look at our indigenous knowledge, our traditional knowledge, and we're very rich with that. And so for me, the place that I work from, I have the privilege to acknowledge villages that are 9,000 years old. And um, to me, that's a very, very good place to come from. So to me, that's a very affluent um, place. Enter colonialism and all that's taken away. And now what we're left with is having to be empathetic. Um, you look, and I work on a lot of uh, reserve communities, and you know the situation's not good. Um, and so you're dealing with, and that was a good um, comment about, you know, there's so much other issues that are at the community level, and here we're dealing with things that aren't necessarily as basic. Um, there's communities without running water, there's communities, um, you know, they're trucking their water, or, or their people are having to leave because there's no services or there's no housing. Um, what do you tell a community when Indian Affairs gives them half a house a year, so they wait two years for one house kind of thing? Um, and it's a subsidy at best, but um, it's, uh, it's an issue that I think we're, the indigenous architects in the country are, are trying, starting to grapple with. Um, currently there's, I think we're up to 16 registered architects in Canada uh, that are Aboriginal from across the country. So we're like one-tenth of one percent of the number of architects in the country. Um, but we did come together uh, with the unseated um, project and we didn't know what we were doing. We had no idea we would ever even win. But we put on a, the first Indigenous uh, design symposium in 2017 in Ottawa as part of the RAIC festival. And it was very well received and we had a lot of people come and we thought, what are we gonna do? What could we do after the symposium? We thought, well, Venice is coming up, why don't we just put an application in? And one of the things we did do is we didn't recognize the, um, what they call the medicine line, the border between the US and Canada. And so we included American architects uh, Native American architects on our team. And 
that got a little bit of uh, eyebrow raising, I guess, because people questioning why would we would do that. And to us, it was more of a, we worked together, we talked together, we um, strategize, I guess, together, because we're all trying to work in community in the face of colonization, whether it's uh, Canada or the US. So we took a definite decision to um, ignore the line and uh, come together. And that's been a very um, positive step. So um, to me, that's, again, just pushing, you know, pushing the agenda, um, continuing to advocate on behalf um, of communities and being in that place between a community and, say, a funder. Um, I always come out on the side of the community, which always puts me in opposition to the funder. But to me, it's something that is necessary and it, it happens at all levels from the basic things of getting dollars for some temporary housing because we have five kids we need to house to deciding on with city of Vancouver trying to get a building permit and hassling over colors because they think the colors are too exotic it just you know take your take your pick there's uh, battles sort of at every every level but I think it's changing and it's growing um, when you look at you know Douglas Cardinal was the first Aboriginal architect in the country and that's he started practicing in 1963. He's 84 now. He's still practicing. Um, so there's a good future. Um, and he's been a fighter, you know, his whole whole career. And we now have, I think, more students in university studying architecture than we have had ever, which is great. Um, and we have schools starting to look at what is indigenous content mean in the curriculum um, and that's for another day but I think I've said enough for now thanks okay, thank, you. thank you Patrick okay our third speaker today Mr. Andy Ann thank you for joining us uh, so Andy Ann's bio is very long I'm going to paraphrase some of it but if you want to see the full version up. of it <laughs> This is a man of some long and lengthy accomplishments. Uh, he is currently the director of the city program at Simon Fraser University. He is a proud son of East Vancouver. I found that all over the place in <laughs> many of your talks. Born and raised in East Vancouver. He has worked extensively in the nonprofit and private urban planning sectors with projects in the metropolitan regions of Vancouver, San Francisco, New York City, Los Angeles, and New Orleans. He specializes in the fields of urban regeneration, applied demographics, geographic information systems, neighborhood development, public outreach, social media, and quantitative research. Um, Prior to his SFU appointment, interestingly, Andrew Yan worked as a senior urban planner with Bing Tom Architects, now called Reverie, I believe, uh, for 11 years. So I, mean, I don't think there's very many architecture offices in the city that have an urban planning section or department. And it seems like at Bing Tom, that was key, right? Uh, that's very interesting. Um, Andy is also an adjunct professor in urban studies at Simon Fraser University and in planning at the University of British Columbia School of Regional Com and Community Planning. He is a recipient of the Planning Institute of British Columbia's Award in Leadership and Advocacy and Innovation, Innovation and the Royal Architecture Institute of Canada's Advocate of Architecture Award. So, um, and there's many other things here, but I will, I will mention this. Uh, he has been um, reappointed to the City of Vancouver's uh, uh, City Planning Commission for the, his second term. He is a former member of the City of Vancouver's Development Permit Board Advisory Panel, um, as well as a member of the Academic Roundtable for the City of Vancouver's Mayor's Task Force on Housing Affordability. He is a member of the Board of Directors of the Downtown Eastside Neighborhood House and David Suzuki's Foundation 
David Suzuki Foundation's Climate Council. So Andy is the only planner we have on the panel. And uh, he's probably going to take a very broad Vancouver-based approach. Because uh, obviously through his work, he loves this city. So Andy, turn wow. it over to you. Well, thank you so much, Amy. I, I would have just taken, he showed up. And, and, and thank you so much for, um, for, for that wonderful introduction. And really, I think that uh, when, when asked to join this panel, I'd like to, again, thank, you, thank the Indian Summer Society very much for the uh, opportunity to speak to you today. That um, it's, it's really, I, I'd like to reconfigure this question as I am not an architect, although I've been known to associate with them, and that it very much, I think, in reframing this question, not as an architect, but as a planner and as a community member of Vancouver, I think it starts asking, um, really, how does a city become an expression of empathy uh, as an, an affluence? And I think that, in summary, I think affluence is easy, empathy is hard. Okay, night. Night guys, but that, but that, that's really I think one of the profound challenges I think we face, particularly in this city. We have I think along the skyline, incredible expressions of affluence, um, if you will, avarice with no bounds in this in this in this city region. But yet I think when we look deeper and when we look deeper onto the streets of our city today that we find these profound challenges of empathy and how do we meet the 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 the, the very uh, dual bipolarities that urbanism has brought forward not only in the world but onto the streets of the city of Vancouver and I think it's in this discussion you kind of look at basic frameworks and kind of the elements of not only you know this wonderful downtown core but towards the rest of the city and region and understand that some of it goes into understanding the organization of the city that fundamentally that um, we think about the you know the development of thing as basic the basic units of what we deal with in terms of say real estate and housing which is the 33 foot um, lot and and th well 33 foot by 120 lot and how that was developed um, by a chain that I promptly left in my office though I did buy one it was amazing um, and come on over to my office and I'll show it to you um, but that fundamentally it's understanding how that has kind of produced a particular unit through which we've organized our city and yet it's a challenge towards working with that unit as from that chain it's not only a instrument of organization but to be brutally honest a weapon of colonization that it segmented the lands of the Musqueam, Squamish and Salitooth people for the open markets of Eastern Canada and Europe and how do we work within that framework as it becomes a global marketplace for real estate in this city. And I think that it's also from that even foundation, we go into the idea that, and, and one, one moment was how Vancouver was described as a city of optimists in 1913 by a landscape architect. So I'm trying to include everyone here into this party, urban planners, architects, and landscape architects, because we got to show much love to the landscape architects. And that really, it's in that understanding that um, Thomas Mawson in 1913 talks about how um, the, the the resources that we have, that the greatest personal assets are an incomparable optimism and unbounded enthusiasm for the city of Vancouver. And, but then I think it's really talking about the city today and really how perhaps there are fewer optimists and that in, in the city today and, 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 in, and indeed what's happening in the city. Uh, when we think about Vancouver, I've been kind of putting context towards the various things I've done in my life, um, that it, if you will, um, New York, well, New York is really a city of neurosis, right? Everyone has some kind of neurosis. You live there long enough, you'll get a neurosis. But that from that neuro neurosis, it, build a city. It's a remarkable energy within the city. But then I think within the city of Vancouver today, it really is a growing anxiety of being and belonging. And whether you are the 40% of renters who pay more than, uh, that are living in unaffordable rental, or even the 25% of owners with mortgages through which are unaffordable, that there are these profound challenges towards 
this act of belonging and being, uh, much less the 3,000 homeless that are living in the region. And I think that it's connected towards elements of the idea that, well, when it comes to incomes, we're about the 50th highest in Canada and the United States. We're luckily above, uh, we're luckily above um, Columbus, Ohio, but below a place called Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, you'll see this analysis tomorrow, but that uh, it's, it, yeah, it took some time to figure out where Lancaster was. Um, and then mixed into this idea of really how do we get around transportation and in this uh, development of a city of, a city of empathy, really how does, uh, how does that uh, empathy express itself in terms of connection? Um, and I think it's all in this discussion about us building a city of empathy. We reach into the idea of a Vancouver of a city of diasporas that um, a quick poll around the table. How many of you were born in the province of British Columbia? Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> that about 60% of the people who live in Metro Vancouver wasn't born in the province of British Columbia, that very much we're a city of diasporas. Whether that diaspora be from Singapore or Shanghai or, or, or Mumbai, or perhaps Saskatchewan that very much it's within that diaspora brings forward those kinds of challenges in how do we connect a city of strangers. And I think that it's in this discussion that we begin to go into perhaps, I think, this conversation of architecture in not only understanding architecture as just a technical action, but one that expresses and contains social values. And as such, ought to be, I think, assessed alongside, not, again, not of ecological performance, but also around social performance. So I think I, I'll, 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 I'll end it there, I think, as part of our conversation, is I, I think really, I, 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 in, in some of my classes that I teach in, in planning, I really talk about the dilemma for planners, but I think it really goes towards the dilemma for planning uh, for, for, all, for all city builders or those involved in city builders is we have this kind of matrix where we find the challenge of, of, of balancing the questions of beauty, truth, efficiency, and what I think is probably the hardest question, justice. And so I think that building a city of empathy is perhaps the single greatest challenge of our time in this city. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Andy, and thank you to the, um, Marianne and Patrick as well. Um, so we, we have about 10 minutes for questions, and then I believe after that, when lunch is served, and Laura Albert in the back there will explain it, um, there will be continued dialogue where the speakers will be eating lunch among the long table there. So you'll have a chance to ask individual questions that we might not get to here. Um, one thing I wanted to discuss that uh, has it came up in our conversation with both Marianne and uh, Patrick was these rapid rehouse projects that are going on in the city of Vancouver. So I think we've many people have probably seen them. It's I think I believe it's BC Housing with a local and Patrick, you can explain how that works. Um, local partnership funds these modular rapid rehouse projects with a goal to put up 2,000 new houses in uh, BC in the next two years across the province, something like this. Patrick, please correct me if I'm off. Um, and so those are modular boxes. Uh, and in our discussions, Patrick, you were mentioning a similar such project with these constraints of budget and uh, timelines that you actually walked away from, knowing that it wasn't going to be something you would be proud of, but also struggling with that issue of wanting to provide the housing, wanting for there to be the you know that basic um, uh, human need there. Um, so I'm going to go back to something that Doshi talks about um, in housing creating a community. Um, so rather than just the house, that can architecture encourage community? And then working on these social housing projects, you're working more also as a social planner than just uh, just meeting, I mean, in Doshi's view, just meeting the basic needs of housing. Um, and, uh, you know, um, Patrick, you had mentioned that you often see that in these projects you have to think outside, uh, think more about the operational aspects of it and not just uh, for, for the success of the project. 
So I just wanted to ask each of you to to respond to what you think of this rapid rehouse modular um, housing generally from architecture perspective or planning perspective. And also if you can think of an example in the city of a successful response to homelessness. Like if um, I think um, Sarish, you put it, um, does Vancouver, um, oh sorry, what, what, what is the meaning of empathetic architecture to a homeless person? And are there any successful examples in Vancouver of that? So we'll start with Marianne. Do you have any <laughs> thoughts on that? I don't, mm, I can have my opinions from yeah. an architect's perspective on how I feel about the modular housing as an object and as a form and also how it might affect the community. But um, I know, and I think probably similarly to anybody uh, put in that position, you would always struggle with the necessity of that, right? The necessity of the importance of your opinion about how beautiful it is. And I think I tried to touch upon that um, in, my, in my earlier talk. Um, you know, like I said, they're obviously not beautiful and I don't think they're intended to be beautiful. I think they're intended to solve a very urgent crisis. And um, in that way, they're completely necessary. But I feel like um, it speaks to our values as a society, um, the fact that it's taken this long to sort of get them there. And then they were done in a way that was so fast that the time it takes to consider um, how architecture and, and form building can um, start to build sense of community and sense of well-being wasn't really acknowledged. I actually don't even think that there's an architect on that project. If I'm, There's a ceiling architect, but I don't think the project was designed by an architect at all. Um, as far as successful examples in the city, I don't really know. I'm not super familiar with that. That's probably a question others can answer better than me. But I do think that, you know, when we really relate um, our responses to our most vulnerable people. Like on the way over here, I was thinking about this construct that we've created um, as a culture through colonialization and through the chain that I really want to see, by the way, Andy, that chain. Um, we, we've, we've created this construct and we've decided that people need to fit into this construct, this way of being that we've decided is the right way. And I see, I've seen it with my child in school, like, the good little conformist like going in his line and he's doing very well at doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing and he'll probably graduate and get a mortgage and some RSPs and then he'll <laughs> retire when he's 65 and he will have gone on that path that we are told is the right way to do it. And all the, uh, our studio is in Chinatown and almost every day I wonder what about the people that just don't fit the construct? Like even just idea, like as an idealization, right? Like as a concept, you don't, that concept of this construct doesn't work for you. And then if you layer on top of that uh, um, uh, injustice throughout their lives or addiction or poverty, like is the really onus on them to try to fit into our construct? like? This is something that I, I do question as an architect all the time. So we have a very Western response to a um, condition that may not fit even the, even the construct that we're talking about, right? So I think that our empathy is so far off the mark because we just don't listen or understand at all. So anyway, that was my rant for the afternoon. <laughs> I'll let someone else go. Go ahead. Yeah. So the rapid rehousing projects, they are around the province. Uh, they're not just in Vancouver. And they are to meet a need. So they're trying to provide 2,000 units as fast as they can. So they have a stock plan that's already drawn up. So if you as an architect decide that you'll work on one of these, they give you that and say, here, please. Seal it. 
yeah, draw it up and, and produce working drawings so we can build it. And we'll partner you up, partner you up with a builder. So you already you have very little choice. And it's very builder driven, I find. Um, and I just couldn't do that. Um, because it, there's no opportunity for any input at all from, yeah. And so you're just building these, these projects. And it's not necessarily something the community that's going to get these things wants. I, I was involved in another project in out the valley, another rapid rehouse project. And I was on the community side, and the community, you know, the nimbyism around this project was such that it didn't go ahead. So again, it's a, a, a battle that you have to decide you're going to try to take on. Um, but there just wasn't the will to, to do that. So. You know, they would turn it to somebody else to see if they can to do can do it. Um, so I, I find that is a bit uh, disconcerting. And right now, BC Housing has a call out for housing, uh, an indigenous call. So, and it's on and off reserve. So BC Housing is trying to cross that magic boundary. Um, and which is a good thing because First Nations have little opportunity for capital dollars to build housing. Um, and this is a, something that quite a few of them are excited about. And BC Housing has, good or bad, um, decided that they will not you know, pay attention to the jurisdictional issues. Um, I did the first BC housing project on reserve uh, in 2005, and it was good. It was very good from the provincial side, from the Fed side, um, and there was ended up being no federal money put into that project. And it's uh, been well received by the community, and. Uh, you know, it's it's cherished, so that's a that's a very positive thing. Sorry, was that one a modular? No. It wasn't modular, right? No, that was a it was a traditional stick build. Mm -hmm. And where is it? It's in Chilliwack, it's Stolo Nation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an elders lodge, and um, BC Housing, to their credit, didn't. You know, you do design, you do project, you do your drawings, you go and you get it costed, and then you meet with the funder and cross both everything and hope that there's going to be money to uh, build this. And BC Housing, to their credit, they didn't say no once. And it got uh, got built. And, and that's the way that uh, the nation had wanted it. And you know that was um, one project where, to me, that was the impetus when, uh, for my uh, PhD, uh, working with the elders, because when I was doing design work with them, quite often they'd come out and they'd say, they'd have a very critical stance and say, you know, it was either the color, the massing, the materials, saying it reminded them of residential school. And where we did that um, project was on the grounds of a former residential school, Kokolitsa. Um, and the elders had attended that school um, that was also the school that my mom had attended. Um, they sent her down from the NAS to Chilliwack. Um, but the elders had a very um, definite idea of what they wanted. And they don't often get asked. And that's, that's something that when I'm doing projects in communities, I definitely want to have that input from people who are going to live in those projects, um, even though if it's social housing, that doesn't matter, right? Um, so. Thanks. Hmm. 
Well, I, I think this discussion is really how fundamentally we think of housing and as, as, as being on a spectrum, and I think really talking about how very much you can treat housing like shelter that very much it's an engineering question. It's a what question. It's how do we fundamentally meet the needs of, basic needs of human beings. But I think what's, I think, difficult, but yet I think the profound challenge is how do we create homes? How do we work with, if you will, the who? And I think that's really where, uh, where architecture really informs really this discussion of home and how do we build home? How do we allow people to make homes? And I think that that's really some of the fundamentals towards from that idea of a home by, by helping uh, folks develop homes that then you can start thinking about community. And that in thinking of community, I think that's when you really open up the opportunity for empathy as I think communities open up the doors for empathy as opposed to the dear basic needs of shelter. And I think that that's really where architects, at least the architects I've, 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 I've had the pleasure to work with, have been able to connect up shelter with home. So I think I'll leave my comments there. Okay. Um. So we've got a five-minute call. So should we just call it now, or should I ask the next question? <laughs> okay. Okay. So so you jump in if you have one. I was I was wanting to get into a kind of more planning perspective because I know we're talking mostly about architecture here. Um, and in my uh, speaking with Marianne, she referenced Charles Montgomery's Happy City, and she did also in her talk. And um, in Charles Montgomery's view, um, the most fundamental ingredient for human happiness in, um, in a city is social connectedness. Uh, and he talks about um, the city as being filled with emotional infrastructure and are we, are we getting that right? Uh, things like our park spaces and all these, um, the other infrastructure that's there, we have emotional ties to that infrastructure um, as being part of this place. And what, you know, how does Vancouver measure up? So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I mean, in his in his talks and in his writings, he often references cities such as New York, um, and he often references the difference between that kind of jumbled, messy block that's been there and adapted over time versus the you know typical when you when you tear that down and then put up something very pristine that uh, takes away that history of. Um, that part of the city, and how that actually um, disconnects people from the emotional connection to that place and, you know, takes the city down a the wrong path for in terms of happiness. So um, this time we'll start with Andy, since you're the planner. Um, <laughs> but what do you think about Vancouver? Is there any thoughts you have? Because you've studied it so much. <laughs> well, I, 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 and yet know so little. Um, <laughs> but that fundamentally, it's really the discussion of social infrastructure and the kind of formal and informal social infrastructure that have been built by various communities over numerous generations. Um, I think about a place, well, frankly, um, the, the ongoing discussions in Chinatown. And if you want to fundamentally understand why certain people are fighting tooth and nail, and I really would say it's tooth and nail, it's the, it, it's the realization that this social infrastructure is fraying. And it's something that needs renewal and yet extension. And I think that it's going into this social infrastructure that is robust and, and, and goes into the who in our city and how does it adapt towards how that who changes. I think that one of our biggest challenges is creating a city where happiness is shared among strangers. I really fundamentally go back to actually how cities are these encounters of strangers as opposed to the encounters of the same or these transactions of the same. And one of our biggest challenges as a city is that we become a city of, same, of sameness. And I think, frankly, if we should go down that path of a city of sameness, we just go back to really what we pretty much, what we call, deal, we, we, we condemn as a suburb. 
And I think that that's really going to be one of our biggest challenges moving forward is talking about this social infrastructure, investing in this social infrastructure, realizing the value of that, of both the intangible and the tangible uh, functions of that social infrastructure. I, I, I always fundamentally go back to this incredible asset of public schools in the city of Vancouver, of community centers, that community centers themselves in the city of Vancouver, uh, again, another topic of fighting tooth and nail, started up as community associations, that they started up as a group of individuals saying, hey, we need to come together for a community center. Uh, the Sunset Community Center is actually a really interesting example. Uh, when they first started in the 1950s, uh, that community center was uh, what they started uh, fundraising. And in the fundraiser, they actually had a perform. Uh, they actually grabbed performers from all over. And Vancouver was such a swinging place. You know, you had Errol Flynn and all the all that ale coming in. But who did they have as their first major fundraiser? Bing Crosby. Th yeah, that one you know, White Christmas, that thing. Um, but that Bing Crosby, as part of that community effort, actually there's an incredible photo in, in, in creating that, uh, that community center of him sitting in a bulldozer, leveling the ground, preparing for construction. So that Bing Crosby very much was associated with the creation of the Sunset Community Center. And indeed, the, um, my, my former firm's uh, inside joke was, uh, you know, it went from one Bing to another. That, that Bing Tom uh, helped rebuild the new Sunset Community Center. And that in that discussion of the Sunset Community Center, it was how you, re like, as much as they aspired towards that social infrastructure in the 1950s, by the 2000s, it was needing a renewal. And part of that key renewal was a reacquaintance to Main Street, a reconnection to Main Street, because fundamentally it was held backwards on the site as opposed to moved and connected to Main Street and all the incredible events that happened there. Um, uh, Vakeshi, I, I mean, all those incredible festivals that, um, which entail a lot of sugar from my <laughs> encounter, but as this incredible celebration of community, those incredible street festivals, the incredible kind of reconnection to Main Street, that it's in that renewal that you see that connection that uh, Bing Tom had made within the Sunset Community Center. So it goes back to this discussion of social infrastructure and I think this importance to see social infrastructure as critical as roads and transit and housing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so Mariana, just in that in that sort of context, because I think you're very familiar with Charles Montgomery, and I think your yeah. projects, and in my opinion, uh, you know, introduce a lot of joy and happiness <laughs> into our urban fabric. Mm -hmm. So, if do you have any? Well, I think I think what struck me um, about what Andy was just saying was about this sense of sort of monotony and. Um, sameness that uh, we sort of see creeping in in Vancouver right now and we like consciously consistently um, push back against against that um, not because we think some of the things are necessarily bad but we just don't necessarily believe that there's only one resolution to an issue or a, or a, um, a a circumstance that the city wants you to respond to. Like, for example, I don't necessarily feel like there's only one way to resolve uh, how tall a building might appear on a street. The city of Vancouver says there's only one way to resolve that, and that's by setting back floors as you kind of go up a building. And that's how come we end up with places like Canby Street, where every building generally looks the same but they're just sort of got a facade that's different. And um, so for me, I think that, that creating a difference in urban fabric also allows you to hear different voices. So right now we hear the voices of whoever that planner was or that group of people who came together and said, this is how our city should look. And um, then we sort of repeat that and think that, yay, we've done such a brilliant job being inclusive and empathetic and sensitive because we had these round table meetings or community sessions at 11 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday when only certain people can make it. And um, <laughs> consistently, like I'm not even being sarcastic, the people who shape the city are the, are the privileged. 
They're people who don't work. They get to go to council meetings at 11 o'clock in the morning and they go to all those, those city sessions. So, um, and I think the city is doing a really good job at trying to bring other voices into the conversation and we are constantly asking the city to do so or looking ourselves. But I think like challenging just those ideas of why things need to look the way a certain way or even you know just ideas about like I, I've sat in a few sort of public meetings and everybody will say transit oriented density and it's like that's because that's what we say all the time we say transit oriented density so now we all just think that transit oriented density is where all our density should go mm. right it's almost like would you I don't know like I find that um that we can really get into these ha these really strong habits of not questioning who things are for, why we've made their decisions, and if they're right in every case. They might be right in all cases, but not necessarily in many. Okay. And Patrick, I'm gonna give the final word to you. What do you think about, is the city moving in a direction that you think is allowing for your community to have more social connectedness and feel like, as Suresh mentioned, you know, the traditional lands that we're on right now in this park. And are, we sounds like we have a long way to go from what I understand, but what, do, what are your views on that? Yeah, I agree, there's a long way to go. Um, the whole question of sameness is something that I've bumped up against in my practice as well. You do a project and the city says, you know that condo project across the street? Make it look like that. And it's like, what? Um, and that happens. You know, they, they want you to have the same character block after block. Uh, and they don't like you to introduce difference. Um, hence, you get those comments about, well, the colors are too exotic or the massing just doesn't work on the street. And somebody somewhere has a book that says these are the rules and that's what you have to do. Um, and even from um, perspective of homelessness where people have an idea of what should happen and that's not necessarily the way that the Aboriginal community wants to, wants to respond. So that's been a, a struggle as well. Um, people in Ottawa have these ideas and they, they fund programs and they give money to Metro Vancouver and say, here, we'll, we'll fund a scattered site model and you guys just poop it out all over the place and put people in these places. And within our community, a congregate housing model is better. People want to be able to live together. Um, it does form that community. There is a connectedness as opposed to being scattered um, throughout the city. So, I mean, that's at a, at a different level, that's at a program level. Um, but again, I think that's um, something that continues. There's First Nations that, and more and more people are moving to urban areas, right? So we have 50% uh, of uh, First Nations or more. Uh, now are not living on reserve. Um, my own community, I think 75% of the people are not there um, because there's nothing there. The government sets it up like that and you have nothing. So um, you have to leave to go to school, you have to go leave to go to medical, you've got, you know, uh, we were a remote community and now there's a road at least, um, that kind of thing. Uh, and more people are coming to urban areas and those nations are wanting to do something for their citizens here. So, you know, there's northern nations that say, we need housing in Vancouver because the affordability here is making our people homeless. So I'm working with one nation up north and they have over 200 youth that are in care. So that's another issue, there's more kids in care now, First Nations kids in care, than we're in residential school. So that's a big issue. 
and you just throw your hands up, you know, it's just like, what do we do? It's a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And, and kids don't want to be where they are. Um, and there's some, you just, I don't know how it happens, but there's one community that has a youth in Vancouver and they're paying f- over $40,000 a month for that person's care. And all, all the nation does is one, bring them home. Um, so I'm going to hand it over to Laura Albert, but first I want to thank Andy, Patrick, Marianne, thank you for joining us today and uh, enlightening us. And also thank you to Doshi for seeding this conversation. <laughs> <laughs>